0: Hey, listeners, it's Dawn, and I'm back for the second part of my conversation with Jen Feng. If you missed it in the first part, we caught up and we talked about what our post lockdown return to work life has been like, and our struggles with feeling like we have to be productive all the time. In the second part, we delve into the issue of reproductive rights, accessing women's health care, and the implications of the recent Supreme Court decision to overturn Dobbs. During the episode, we talk about an article that Jen wrote following the ruling, and I just want to remind you to check it out. The link is in the show notes, and it's an excellent read that will give you a primer on how this decision specifically impacts Asian American women. All right, listeners, here's the second part of our conversation. Enjoy. Now, I think one of the pieces that I came across uh recently right and I mentioned this at the top of our conversation was a piece that you wrote about roe and i and um, and I know that um, women's reproductive issues women's health issues as you've written about that before right yeah. um, and uh, we'll provide the link to the piece that i'm referring to in the show notes, right. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about uh, what number one, when the overturning of Roe was happening, right? How you experienced that, and uh, how that, how those uh, feelings, emotions, that thinking kind of came together into that piece. And then I'm going to ask you a little bit, a bit about you know, uh, what were some reflections in in that piece?
1: Yeah, so when they overturned Roe, i actually had a very emotional reaction and we had a preview we had sort of noticed that this was going to happen with the you know the leaking of the dobbs decision a few months ago and so we knew this was coming in the pipeline and yet and yet when it actually happened i was stunned yeah even though we knew it was going to happen i was just completely devastated like
0: it actually happened that that's right. what what happened in my brain like logically i it's like we knew this was going to happen but then when it actually happened it was like what yeah. right
1: yeah it, it i felt so betrayed by yeah I don't. I don't want to say, you know, this country betrayed me because that's not yeah. that, that isn't what I mean. But sort of like this political project that we've all been engaging in, right. this belief that we can influence for the better, um, this this system of of rules and governing um, for, you know, more freedom for ourselves, for our kids, and and p- the protection of our rights. That that this entire system. Mm-hmm. Um, could so cavalierly dismiss yeah. um, something that three quarters of Americans agree is 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 right, which is access to to abortion, right. um, and that it could be done with so quickly, with so little input and ability to yeah. to push back against it. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think was just again, it's not like it was like. A surprise but it was just such a um i had such a loss of belief or hope that we actually have any ability to fight for anything for right. ourselves yeah and, and that was that was sort of the feeling that i had i was just like so demoralized yeah. um in in the process quote unquote yeah, yeah. Um, because it happened so so easily
0: yeah i mean i remember that day I mean, I was, I felt really disappointed and helpless. And then I kind of didn't, you know, I spent maybe that day maybe doing a lot of reading and then I didn't, I decided to, I need to stop, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then I spent the next day like screaming into the internet through my, mm-hmm. you know, social media, <laughs> like, yeah. what the hell, right? So I was like posting yeah. all this stuff and my stories and all this stuff, right? And, um, and and just coming back around to understanding that it's nothing has ever been guaranteed, right? Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. these um, resources, the, the uh, women's ability to access—it's not even about abortion, right? To access mm-hmm. the healthcare they need, yeah. we have always and will continue, even when Roe, right, was still in place, right? it has been a consistent and constant battle, right? And yeah. just to remind myself about that, this, is, this changes nothing, right? Mm-hmm. There is just, now, there is just an even more pressing battle. These, yeah. you know, pushing to ensure and that women continue, can continue to get access to the healthcare that they need. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. but I went to this like despair phase.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a despair phase. But it, right. I mean, also, what was really frustrating to me was the level of disinformation and misinformation yes. about the the impact and the importance mm-hmm. of of abortion access. Like, yeah. especially because I think even even those who support abortion mm-hmm. and reproductive rights have a. I, in my in my opinion a sort of a narrow framing of life yes.
0: matters so it's, narrow so and yeah. i tried to be very open-minded i'm like i want to hear i really yeah. i mean i've read it but i'm like i want to hear right what what anti-abortion access advocates have to say now right and right. i was really right. really trying to be i still am very open-minded but i agree with you so narrow so narrow yeah
1: I, especially because. I think it's really important that we frame it around, you know, basic body autonomy. Yeah. But the, the, the material impact of this law will it will affect people who are seeking an abortion for their own reasons, but it will also affect basic health care. Yes. And that was the part that really frustrated me. Right. That like it wasn't until after the Dobbs decision that there was this argument of like you've got to understand this is a basic tool yes. in our reproductive health care toolbox that impacts not just people who have unwanted pregnancies, but people who um, need help because they're having a miscarriage, because yes. they're trying to become pregnant. Like, yes. There's there's a, such a large segment of the population who need to have this as part of their basic reproductive health yeah. care um, and suite of tools available to them. And it was so frustrating to me yeah. that we didn't talk about that we didn't talk about the people who are absolutely going to die yeah. because of these laws right. until after the Dobbs decision. I think one of the things that made me most angry was the wasted three months from when the Dobbs decision leaked to when it actually happened. Yeah. It felt like we all were like, it all. Um, we knew that this was coming and then we kind of did nothing with that information.
0: I, you know what? I, I feel like, honestly, I feel like a lot of people just, were like, you know what, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be okay. like, even though the memo was leaked. Right. And and I have to confess, I was kind of worried, but not worried because I'm like, it's, you know, it's been around for so long. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so I can understand, you know, what that um, was like. But I do agree with you that, you know, there there was a moment in which we could have done more. Right. And I, I, think for me, you know the the other piece that I want to go back to that you were talking about the the, the in terms of the narrow definition, right, or the yeah. the narrow focus, because, you know, pro-lifers are very much focused on um, when does life begin. This is about abortion, right? Yeah. And I've been telling the story um, for folks to folks, right, and that, you know, I have never gotten an abortion before, okay, mm-hmm. but this. I will always defend Roe because this, um, the the ability for women to access reproductive, all of the healthcare related to reproduction is incredibly important. And you mentioned this earlier, right? Because I would not have been able to access things like birth control. I would have not been able to access things like just getting, you know. Uh, Access to examinations, you know, I've had a couple pregnancy scares, right, and I've also um, had to deal with miscarriage as well, and and all of that is part of that access to healthcare. That a lot of these clinics, health provider providers, community um, health centers, women health centers, right? A lot of people don't realize that abortion is one of the resources that's offered in places like Planned Parenthood. I, in, in times in my life where I did not have insurance, I had to go places like that. And it's places like that that enabled me to continue getting the health care I needed, right? Which has enabled me to continue. I mean, like as a being in academia, you know, right? You go through these periods of time where you don't have insurance. Mm-hmm. Right. So prior to, you know, your partnership, right? Prior to, you know, me as well, it's like I went through these long periods of time where I didn't have insurance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like as a grad student, you know, you get very, very minimal. Right? right. And if it weren't for places like that, I literally would not be here. I really yeah. would not be here. Yeah. So I so and I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think people need to understand it's it's, a, it's access to all of the resources. Right, that it that, an abortion is one of those things, and I think that, you know, it's not black and white. It just doesn't only boil down to abortion. It's much more than that.
1: Right, and related to that, you know, I've been open on Twitter that like, for both of my pregnancies, I underwent you know fertility treatments, mm-hmm. and in a similar way, I think it's really important to understand again the way that I said it. It's a tool in your toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. Um, trying to manage your reproductive health is about you know being able to you know use all of the tools when they're necessary because this is all about medical care and having laws on the books that limit your ability to maintain your reproductive health whether it is fertility or ending a pregnancy it what that's about is getting you the best medical care because yeah. now you have all the medical options that oh, are yeah. available. And so you can do what is most medically appropriate. Right. And what I think has been so important to hear now that I wish that we had been hearing before the Dobbs decision was that eliminating um, or restricting access to abortion is actually having also a major impact on people who are miscarrying, people yes. who are having ectopic pregnancies. Yes. Um, people who are having um, pregnancies that um, are, you know, threatening their own health. Right. Like yeah. basically what we're having is an entire new medical landscape mm-hmm. where doctors aren't able to provide, or, or aren't aren't free to make the most appropriate medical decisions with their patients. Yeah. Now they're, now it's really, be, those medical decisions are absolutely being dictated by the laws. Yeah. Um, and what we're seeing are a whole lot of patients who can't make their own choices for their bodies yeah. um, a lot of times having nothing to do with unwanted pregnancy again yeah. having abortion access for an unwanted pregnancy is an absolutely appropriate framing
0: yeah
1: but w- what I wish is that we were talking about sort of the full the full array of what having access to these tools is about so that we're talking about you know the people who are um, who have appropriate access to abortion because they have an unwanted pregnancy, but yeah. also alongside all of the other patients who are also who also need access to this for other medical reasons mm-hmm.
0: too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and when we talk specifically about Asian Americans, and this is <clears throat> why that piece that you wrote was so, I think, enlightening for me, is that number one, Overwhelming number of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders support abortion. It was 74% of Asian Americans' respondents, right, uh, support abortion. And this is the thing that is really striking to me, right? 6% of patients who seek abortion care nationwide are Asian American. And what that means in terms of numbers, and this is, I didn't even realize this, is that one third of pregnancies in the Asian-American community end in abortion. Mm -hmm. Right, so when we think about um, just abortion, you know, itself, right? This is very much an issue that impact Asian-Americans, that Asian-Americans should be talking about more, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And um, and that we also need to listen to Asian Americans telling their stories um, and accessing, you know, this type of healthcare, right? And so what was that like, um, putting together that that piece? I mean, I'm just curious because, you know, those numbers, I think just have stayed with me, totally have yeah. stayed with me.
1: I, well, I really appreciate that. So this was um, a story, I, I just want to shout out my editor, uh, Mishi, who, you know when the dobbs decision went down i was like i really want to write this piece yeah. and she hadn't been pitched anything about it yet so she absolutely gave me a lot of freedom to write this piece and this is yeah. in some ways an update to an earlier post i would written many many years ago mm-hmm. um and and one of the things you know there i have a few thoughts about this issue but one of the things that i just want to shout from the rooftops is like reproductive justice is an asian american and pacific islander issue yeah. it, Belongs on our main stage within the Asian American and founder communities as an issue that we should be advocating around Mm -hmm. and making a sort of a central part of what we talk about in our discourse. And yet, and yet it's not. And that is absolutely frustrating to me because, you know, reproductive rights, access to reproductive health care impacts so many Asian Americans and Pacific Anders in a way that because we don't prioritize it as an issue is largely invisible yeah. in the way that we talk about the things that we fight for or, or you know the Asian American and Pacific Islander movement we don't talk about how abortion access is critical for our community as it is for all communities and how we are stakeholders in this fight and it, and that like lack of of emphasis uh, on reproductive justice in the Asian American Pacific Islander communities exists alongside an invisibility of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders within the larger reproductive rights movement as well. And so I think the people for whom reproductive justice is an important issue, as Asian American feminists, we get frustrated on both sides because it's like, we're not talking about this in the Asian American Pacific Islander communities. We're not talking about this in the sort of reproductive justice circles either. And so for a lot of us, it's just about trying to render visible the ways in which the Asian American Pacific Islander communities are deeply impacted as well by the loss of yeah. those rights, um, yeah. and just sort of you know making those statistics known that we are users of abortion services, yeah. um, in some ways, in in ways that reflect sort of larger trends in the community in in in, in the nation, and sometimes in ways that are sort of like disproportionate relative yeah. to sort of larger trends. Yeah. Um, as as you mentioned, the the statistic that you know six percent of Folks who seek out abortion care are Asian American or Pacific Islander. That is a statistic that I think is most important because it indicates that we are there, we are patients, we are using these services. And that I think is a direct contradiction to the ways in which, you know, sort of model minority stereotypes would suggest that um, we are not, you know, part of the stakeholders in this fight.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And this is where we want to give a shout out to NAPOF, National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, Mm -hmm. who nationally, they've been there advocating fighting for um, reproductive um, access, uh, reproductive Mm -hmm. justice for Asian American and Pacific Islander women. All right. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you got to go soon, but there's one other thing that I've, I've also been thinking a lot about, you know, in relation to this is that I know that there are a lot of Asian American and Pacific Islander families right now who are thinking about how to broach this topic, mm-hmm. right, with their kids mm-hmm. and with their families, right? Mm-hmm. What have those conversations been like for you with in within your your family, your with your partner? And I know that your kids are probably, you know, they're like too young to yeah of this right yeah. <laughs> but I mean what if, I mean you know as someone who's very you know who's written about this thinking about this right what has that been like for you because I've been I've had very honest conversations with my son about yeah. this right so what have those you know conversations in your family been like?
1: Well, so I think, as you mentioned, my, my kids are too young, so um, we haven't had that conversation yet. But as I'm looking towards the future, one of the things that my partner and I have had very honest conversations about is what do we do as the reproductive healthcare landscape changes over the next five to 10 years? And how is that going to impact both of our children?
0: Yeah.
1: How are we going to change the ways in which we think about what is going to be possible, how are we going to start to have those conversations with our kids? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that, well, we can hope that the way things are going to look is that some states will maintain access. And so there will be a way we hope to still access these services somewhere in the country. But that still, you know, changes a lot of the ways in which we might think about the emphasis on being honest with our kids having them be honest with us yeah and to sort of have a foundation for conversation about what um what sex is going to look like mm-hmm. as they as they grow up what um a safe sex is going to look like mm-hmm. and to make sure that we start now in having a foundation for honest conversations so yeah. that um, when the time comes that we might need to have a conversation about um, about sex, that there's already a basis for being honest with one another, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like, what yeah. we don't want is to have lack of abortion access around the country um, co- complicate, you know, the lack of putting things in place such that our kids don't feel comfortable talking to us right. about when they encounter challenges. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, hoping against hope that in the next five to 10 years, we can really push back legislatively um, against what's happened. And so hopefully the landscape will start to come back around and we're not looking at um, inaccessibility because of geography. And then lastly, you know, we are, we're thinking a lot about what does this country look like relative to our immediate family? Like, will we continue to be living in a state where, abortion is accessible are you know will our careers take us to places where abortion won't be accessible what will that look like for us and for our kids um even even the states now that we think are quote unquote safe will that continue to be the case yeah it may not be in in another administration uh it it may you know the places we think are sanctuary states now may not be and so that doesn't necessarily only apply to people living in in so called
0: sanctuary states right now. Yeah, yeah, and I think helping our kids understand what that might mean for them too, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, this is where I've you know I've always had very open conversations with my son about sex um, very early on, you know, and also making sure that you know I started very early on with the Topic of consent, not mm-hmm. necessarily relating to sex. I didn't start with like consent as a sex thing, but consent mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, what is okay with you, what do you feel, you know, what what is not? What do you want to participate in? What is not, right? Mm-hmm. So this notion of consent, I think, was something very early on that I introduced to him. And then you know, later on as he got older, right um, because in, at, in fifth grade, Right. That's what he, you know, had the sex education at school. Unfortunately, it was interrupted by covid. So, you know, that didn't happen. So I was like, oh, my gosh, now I have to do this. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I had that conversation with him. And so it for me, it's been a very it's been a relatively easy segue to talk mm-hmm. about abortion. And so introducing this idea of abortion, right, mm-hmm. it I can I can connect it to our previous conversations about consent, about making decisions. You know, you you referred to it as kind of um, bodily autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And being able to back up those conversations through my actions of of respecting him Mm -hmm. as well, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Having his own kind of bodily autonomy so that he understands it, even though you know he identifies as uh, as um, a boy as a man, right? That these issues also impact him right mm-hmm. in in a broader sense and so it's yeah. been i i think you know i'm very kind of slow and careful but then also helping him understand that also as a as a male identified um human being that this is also his issue yes as well yes right and 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 just being open and just being talk and being, you know, holding the space, you know, to talk to him about that. Because his friends are talking to him. Mm. His friends are all talking about Roe. I mean he Mm. it's really interesting, but the way they, you know, these teenagers communicate with each other is they send memes to each other all the time. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And TikTok videos, right? And so he's showing me like these memes and these TikTok videos and everything is just You know, we might think that they might they are not, you know, they're not old old enough to talk about this terrible thing. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, if you talk about abortion, you invariably have to talk about rape. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That we think that they're not old enough, but they're already talking about this, Mm -hmm, you know. mm -hmm. And so for me, um, you know, every opportunity he shows me like these memes and these TikTok videos that his friends like they're sending each other. Right. And they're talking about it in their own ways. It's like. It may not be direct, it may not be in the ways that, you know, in a formal sense, but they are talking about it. And I think that, um, you know, we're in a moment now, especially for me, where I want to, as you said, like, continue having that opportunity to have open conversations, to be supportive, right? Even my nieces and nephews as well, you know, my cousins, my younger cousins, right? Yeah. Um, I want to be able to talk with them to talk about also the future implications of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think our kids are, and I say this generally, all kids um, are a lot more attuned to what's going on and a lot more capable than mm-hmm. perhaps we popularly give them credit for. Yeah. They, are, they are aware of the world. They are observing what is happening. They are capable of more nuanced conversation than I think we allow for. And yeah. one of the things that I think you mentioned, you know, talking about consent, you know, we talked about consent, we we have very much emphasized this idea of body autonomy and consent with both of our kids. One of my kids is a pre verbal toddler. Uh, And, uh you know, but this idea of consent is, I think, essential because it really is fundamentally about respecting others and respecting boundaries. And that is a toddler level, age appropriate conversation and lesson to be to be giving. And so I think, you know, sort of tying it to a bigger picture about parenting, I think our 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 responsibility is always to try and build the foundations of ideas, you know, and give our kids the credit that they can understand it. Yeah. And we're just constantly adding to that foundation. But I don't think that it's ever too early to start putting those pieces in place. Right. Um, and we can be talk we can be talking about consent without ever having to like openly be like this is about you know um, sex education. We can yeah. be talking about body autonomy and respecting others um, in ways that they understand and can incorporate into their like core worldview mm-hmm. even as early as one or two.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. that
1: you know how do we talk about our how, how do we talk to our kids about this? I think both of us are kind of saying hopefully you've been putting the pieces in place a lot earlier than now to sort of now add this piece on to something that we've already yeah. been teaching our kids about respect and consent and all of these things.
0: Now do you think it's contradictory though? Let me let me come back around and then this will be yeah. kind of my last thing, because you and know, I can talk to you forever, right? But do you think it do you think it's contradictory going back to the COVID conversation, right? <laughs> talking about about bodily autonomy talking about consent right this notion of mandated you know like masks and you know um boosters and vaccinations and all that right how have you know you've kind of made sense of that um and obviously not talking you know about it you know with your kids but you know to your partner about mm-hmm. have maintaining this this you know um, it's really important to have bodily autonomy, but then you're also balancing needing, you know, to help address public safety. So how, right. you know, how do we reconcile these two? Because I have conservative friends who just like, well, this is why I should have the ability to decide if I want to vaccinate or wear my mask or not. It's my body. Right. Because there's been this appropriation. Yeah. Right of the right. of that line
1: of, of the body autonomy conversation. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let me let me tell you how I've been doing it with okay. my kids okay. and and also with my partner, which is we emphasize respect and consent and our place in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know our kids were taught to mask basically when the shutdown happened, and. You know my kids are young enough that you institute a rule they'll just do it right they don't they're they're young enough that they don't actually need an explanation right but um to to the extent that my daughter grew up sort of during the shutdown she and to the extent that she understands covid which is just barely Mm -hmm. what she does what we have emphasized is trying to respect your friends trying to respect others and trying to to plus place care on the people around you. Mm -hmm. And so when she has questioned it, or or now when when I say, you know, it's time to mask, I always say we want to put on our masks so that we can keep our friends safe (laughs) and keep them from getting sick Mm -hmm. and to keep ourselves and our own bodies healthy as well. And so I think it plugs into this conversation about care for others, care for self, respecting (laughs) others, respecting our own body's boundaries so that we are able to keep ourselves safe from um from sickness but i think what really what really resonates with with my kids um or at least you know my verbal child is this idea of doing something to keep others safe and i think that that feeds really strongly into the way that we've been teaching um consent and Mm -hmm. teaching respect for other people's
0: bodies Uh, yeah
1: especially because we are at that age right now where we're trying to teach about, um, you know, having care and, you know, cause my kids are, are, are preschoolers. And so a lot of their day-to-day conflicts are about, how uh, how can I move my body in a way that doesn't hurt my friend? Mm-hmm. How can we share toys? How can we respect my friend wants to play this, but I want to play that? And so a mm-hmm. lot of the kind of um, social emotional development that we're doing right now is all around this idea of you know both advocating for yourself, but also respecting the boundaries of your friends and, and being careful of your friends. Yeah. So I think this, this idea of masking actually fits really well into that yeah. idea. Because I don't think we're teaching consent and, and body autonomy like I can do whatever I want, yes. you know, dang the consequences. This mm-hmm. is about understanding what my body needs and the things that we can do to um, take care of it. Yeah. And, and and that is the way that we can talk about body autonomy from like a reproductive rights framework, but also from a like masking framework, because it is all about care for self and care for others.
0: Yeah. And so those folks who don't want to mask or vaccinate, right? I kinda there's like one piece missing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, right. Right. The, right. Yeah.
1: Right. And that that I think that's actually a critical piece is that, you know, the people who are anti-masking and who are appropriating the body autonomy conversation are missing that piece that it's about care. It's yeah. about self care. It's about care for others. And when you choose not to mask you are choosing to not place care on your community yeah and that is not a you know masking aside i don't want my kids to be taught the lesson that they don't have to care about um the way that their actions can impact others
0: negatively right Right. yeah i i appreciate that so much um i think Um, not because, not and and I just want to be clear, not just because it aligns with my own values, but I think it's an ability for us to connect with these kind of like these broader conversations because we've come, we've been able to connect COVID, um, Roe, and coming back to how we talk to our kids about these issues on a day-to-day basis, right? All of that, you know, I think comes full circle to um, how we decide to Um, you know, cultivate a sense of, uh, I think, respect for self, respect for others, right? And is a very, um, you know, I think a a clear, uh, um, a clear kind of issue and topic that we kind of just have to come back to over and over again. And so I really appreciate you taking time to catch up uh, with me. It's always good to hear what's going on with you, Jen. Um, I would love, oh my gosh, there's like all this other stuff that I wanted to talk to you about that we didn't have have a chance. Yeah,
1: well, we just have to make some time and do it again. This is really great. And thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, no, thank you as always for, um, I think being someone who's consistently there, thinking about um, Asian American issues, about Asian American women's issues, you know, for your writing, um, and and I appreciate you so much. Um, you know, you're you're just you're just like this wonderful, wonderful, brilliant person. So, thank you. you're making yeah. me blush, but thank you so. Oh much. well, you know what? It it's, <laughs> it is well deserved. So. Um, Yes. And listeners, thank you for uh, for staying with us. um, And thank you for hanging in there as we catch up with each other. Um, We'd love to hear how things are going on uh, with you. Catch up with us at Instagram at From Here Podcasts uh, and catch up with our previous episodes, as uh, Jen mentioned earlier. And as I mentioned, there was a previous episode that we had uh, with Jen And you can find those also in the link in our um, Instagram as well. Uh, You can find us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Leave us a review and help others get to From Here Podcasts. Um, And take care, listeners. We will catch you soon. Thanks for being with us. And thanks, Jen. Have a wonderful day.